My first reading is from the introduction of the book Speak Truth to Power by Carrie Kennedy Cuomo. Told in the defender's own voices, the interviews in this book provoke fundamental questions for the reader. Why do people who face imprisonment, torture, and death continue to pursue their work when the chances of success is so remote and the personal consequences are so grave? Why did they become involved? What keeps them going? Where do they derive their strength and inspiration? How do they overcome their fear? How do they measure success? Out of the answers emerges a sym sympathetic and strength-giving strength portrait of the power of personal resolve and determination in the face of injustice. And my second reading is from A People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn. Montgomery Blacks called a mass meeting. A powerful force in the community was E.D. Nixon, a veteran trade unionist and experienced organizer. There was a vote to boycott all city buses. Carpools were organized to take blacks to work. Most people walked. The city retaliated by indicting 100 leaders of the boycott and sent many to jail. White segregationists turned to violence. Bombs exploded in four black churches. A shotgun blast was fired through the front door of the house of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the 27-year-old Atlanta-born minister who was one of the leaders of the boycott. King's home was bombed. But the black people of Montgomery persisted, and in November 1956, the Supreme Court outlawed segregation on local bus lines. Martin Luther King gave a preview of the oratory that would soon inspire millions of people to demand racial justice. He said the protest was not merely over buses, but over things that go deep down into the archives of history. He said, we have known humiliation, we have known abusive language, we have been plunged into the abyss of oppression, and we decided to raise up only with the weapon of protest. It is one of the great, greatest glories of America that we have the right to protest. If we are arrested every day, if we are exploited every day, if we are trampled over every day, don't ever let anyone pull you so low as to hate them. We must use the weapon of love. We must have compassion and understanding of those who hate us. We must realize so many people are taught to hate us that they are not totally responsible for their hate. But we stand in life at midnight. We are always on the threshold of a new dawn. Just where should I begin today? So, so, so much to say on this Sunday preceding Martin Luther King Jr. Day 2024. I don't know where to begin. I think I will begin here, however. Martin Luther King Jr. is a hero of mine. I have a lot of people I respect, admire, and appreciate, but few I would actually call my hero. 
Robert Luther King is, Martin Luther King is my hero. I wish I had been a few years older and far more informed and developed in my values and principles than I was in the 1960s so that I might have joined the struggle. I might have marched with Dr. King as did my mentor and first UU minister, Reverend Dr. Gordon Gibson. Gordon was the minister of the UU Fellowship of Elkhart when I first discovered Unitarian Universalism, and he is largely responsible for my being a UU minister today. Shortly after he was first ordained, however, he was in Selma, Alabama, participating in the early phases of the 1965 voting rights campaign there. He then also was in Mississippi from 1969 to 1984, the only UU minister in the state in those years. And he has a lot of stories to tell. But let me tell you just a little bit about Gordon using a 2009, 2009 article by Matthew Cuthbert in the Huntsville Times. When the Reverend Gordon Gibson remembers the spring of 1965, heated by the racial tensions in Selma, he's still a little in awe of the brash and naive 25-year-old he was, a newly ordained minister who traveled from Boston to wade into the civil rights movement. I was not old enough or smart enough to know what I was doing, but I did it anyway, said Gibson from his Knoxville home this week. But it turns out it really does make a difference, he said, for outsiders to play a role. I went to gather facts at the request of the Unitarian Universalist leaders, and I finally realized that that was a cop-out because the local people were putting everything on the line. They could lose their jobs, their house, or be physically attacked just for showing up at the courthouse, whereas I could step back into the crowd with my ticket back to Boston in my pocket and look as white as Sheriff Clark. When Gibson and his colleague, the Reverend Ira Blaylock, chose to step out of the crowd, to help with the protests being led by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., they were both arrested and sent, spent four days in the Dallas County Jail. The fact that 100 black citizens of the county had been arrested had not received much attention from the national press, Gibson said ruefully. But sadly, when two white ministers from the North were jailed, that made national headlines. While history may look back at that time and define the good guys and the bad guys as clear-cut categories, Gibson said the most important lesson he learned that spring is that telling those two categories apart is not a simple task. The article went on to say, like many historians and Americans, Gibson cannot help but see the election of Barack Obama as the final victory of those voting rights marches. I believe the first votes cast in this election for Barack Obama were cast by Jimmy Lee Jackson, Jim Reeb, and Viola Liuzzo, Gibson said, quoting his friend Ira Blaylock's Christmas letter to him. Jackson, Reeb, and Liuzzo were activists who were killed, who were killed in attempts to stop the protests. 
Since 1965, America has come a long ways, Gibson said, but much of the rhetoric surrounding Obama's campaign shows that there is a ways to go. There is still a problem with how race acts in our society. The conversation has shifted greatly, but it is a conversation that has got to go on because we have a huge amount to learn. There ends the article. Gordon is the author of Southern Witness, Unitarians and Universalists in the Civil Rights Era, an account of the roles that UU individuals and congregations played in the civil rights movement in the South in the 1950s and 60s. He currently serves as a member of the board and the historian for the Li Living Legacy Project, an organization that conducts pilgrimages, pilgrimages to important sites in the American civil rights movement in the 1950s and 60s. He and his wife Judy began the Living Legacy Project in the mid-2000s. I bring up Gordon in some detail because in honoring Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., it is important for us to see how King brought others into the movement and how it is important to the very pressing and ongoing needs of the movement still today to look to others who have been moved by Dr. King's passion, commitment, and oratory. I say that the civil rights movement remains a pressing and ongoing concern. And although much has changed since the early years of the movement, its symptoms are clear today in the vast difference between the number of blacks and whites imprisoned in our country, although that difference is diminishing some, the disparity in wealth between black and white families, systemic racism in law enforcement attitudes, the difference in life expectancy between the two races, although that also is narrowing some, the difference in educational experiences between blacks and whites, and so on. We are unfortunately privy to some of the more horrendous abuses of police power against black citizens when police cameras and onlookers' cell phones catch the incidents as they did last year's beating death of Tyree Nichols by five Memphis police officers who were all incidentally also black. But we are likely unaware of the minute differences in attitudes of police officers in dealing with black citizens as opposed to white citizens. Research published by the American Psychological Association shows that when officers spoke to black men at traffic stops, their tone of voice conveyed less warmth, respect, and ease than when they spoke with white men. These researchers also found that these subtle negative interactions can contribute to a cycle of mistrust between police and black community members. Poverty and crime are also certainly linked with blacks disproportionately impacted by both but I don't really need to tell you these things. You know them. What I need to do is ask with you why and commit with you to do what we can to make things better. 
I was in a meeting not too long ago where we were discussing the problems abiding in this country and in the world and what we might do to help. At some point, I thought to myself, we need a massive moral movement. So terribly much is wrong, and we all as human beings seem largely helpless to stop it. Some massive, all-encompassing moral change of attitude from greed, hate, mistrust, abuse, war, violence, discrimination, selfishness, to an acknowledgment of the inherent worth and dignity of every person, justice, equity, and compassion in human relations, the goal of world community with peace, liberty, and justice for all, just three of the Unitarian Universalists' seven principles. Or for our Christian siblings, Jesus' admonishment to comfort those who mourn, to love, to be merciful, to forgive, to give, to share, to care for. Every major faith tradition has directions for how to live well within the tradition. For Buddhists, there are the five precepts, among other things, and they include do not harm a living thing, do not steal and avoid harmful speech. Judaism strongly affirms that all members of society, all members of society possess value and dignity, very similar to our principle. Jews are required to preserve the dignity of self and others, to take care of and help heal others, to help the poor, the vulnerable, and the disenfranchised. Hindus believe that they have a moral responsibility to act in the right way and to make choices that are helpful to everyone. They believe in empathy, love, and humility, or as the Bhagavad Gita says, peacefulness, self-control, austerity, purity, tolerance, honesty, wisdom, knowledge, and religiousness. Pagans believe in respect for all life, harming no one, the golden rule, honoring diversity, and respecting nature. Our religious persuasions teach us to love and care. They teach us to have compassion. So do many of our secular sources. Author and retired Unitarian Universalist minister Robert Fulgham wrote among his many books, A Simple Guide for Human Conduct. In his book, All I Really Need to Know, I Learned in Kindergarten, he urges us to share everything, play fair, don't hit people, and don't take things that are not yours. Pretty simple. And it seems such suggestions should not be hard to do. Why then? Why do these things seem to get lost in the living of our lives, even in the living of the lives of the most pious among us? Did evolution stop somewhere along the way because we sure don't seem to be evolving much as a species. As I struggle to live with all that is going on and try to think of ways for it to change from inequity into goodness, 
I have to stop and think about all that I could do, but don't. I'm generous and caring, but I'm busy. I'm tired, I'm discouraged, disheartened, dismayed. Oh, wait. Martin Luther King surely was all of those things too, discouraged, disheartened, dismayed, and more, but he did not let any of that derail him from what he believed he should and could do. He said, our lives begin to, our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. And he said, out of the mountain of despair, a stone of hope. And the time is always right to do what is right. In a 1965 Playboy interview, he tells a story about his daughter, Yolanda. He said, the family often used to ride with me to the Atlanta airport. And on our, on our way, we always passed Funtown, a sort of miniature Disneyland. Yolanda would inevitably say, I want to go to Funtown. One of the most painful experiences I have ever faced was to see her tears when I told her Funtown fun was closed to colored children. For I realized that at that moment, the first dark cloud of inferiority had floated into her little mental sky. That at that moment, her personality had begun to warp with that unconscious bitterness toward white people. But it was of paramount importance to me that she not grow bitter. That says so much about Dr. King, his values and his concerns and his courage. He completed this story saying, pleasantly word came to me later that Funtown had quietly desegregated, so I took Yolanda. A number of white persons there asked, aren't you Dr. King and isn't this your daughter? I said we were, and she heard them say how glad they were to see us there. As we observe Martin Luther King Jr. Day tomorrow, in whatever ways we choose to do so, let us remember all that he taught us and from where it came. If you can imagine slavery, the brutality and often fatal slavery, can you imagine doing that to another human being? I can't, I can't imagine doing it to an animal. I can barely imagine doing it to an insect, except mosquitoes and flies, maybe. <laughs> so let us remember all that he taught us and let it energize and invigorate us to do the work that we are called to do, no matter how tired or busy we may be. Right now, that might be voter registration, supporting black arts and businesses, joining our Neshoba social justice team, which is working on this very issue. Its next meeting is Tuesday, February 13th at 7 o'clock here at the church. Please come so that we might be a part of the solution in a very, very troubled world. As Dr. King said, we are always 
on the threshold of a new dawn. May it be so, and amen. Let us quiet ourselves now for a time of meditation, reflection, and prayer in spoken word and shared silence. Listen, we are always on the threshold of a new dawn, and as we glory in the sunrise, let us listen closely for somebody's calling our name. What shall we do? Amen. Mm -hmm.